Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I've been away for a few weeks in the U.S., vacation, visiting my family. The first time in more than 15 years that I've been in America, other than for work, funerals, or bar mitzvahs. It's a different way to experience a society that is clearly in crisis, but not yet at crisis point. It was also a chance to take a break from the endless information intake. My relationship to online media is analogous to a whale's to krill. I stare at my laptop all day and strain millions of tiny bits of news and information, true and false, through my eyeballs. This provides my organism with energy, and what doesn't get burned up immediately adds to the terrible weight of what's already on my mind. Anyway, there was time when I wasn't being battered by the Atlantic waves along the Jersey shore or watching the interplay of sunlight and cloud shadow on the western slope of the Green Mountains or taking my 12-year-old for her first ride on the Staten Island Ferry to have random impressions. And as my krill intake was way down, some pieces of info stood out more than they otherwise might have. I watched television news just once, for a very few minutes. It's hysterical, condescending to its viewers, and in the way it contextualizes reporting, frequently wrong. Some other podcaster will back that assertion. The history of how TV news got that way requires several essays. But trust me on this. The presentational style so overwhelms the factual content that Americans, even the most intelligent, are operating in a news vacuum. Much of the crisis in which American society is immersed, and which has been building for decades, has been framed by a news media that doesn't inform, but survives commercially by creating this hysteria, as well as outrage. It was inevitable that an hysterical and outrageous person would gain political power democratically in my native land. That's the unique quality of this slow-motion breakdown. It's self-induced via media more than a response to actual events. I turned off the news, but not my Twitter and Facebook feeds. I became like many Americans I know, informed by posts, put up by friends. One item in particular stuck out. A DC journal I follow retweeted this from Harvard University's student newspaper, The Crimson's Twitter account. We made a mistake. 30.3% of surveyed Harvard freshmen are legacies, not 41.8%. It being Harvard, I'm sure the irony in the sentence, we made a mistake, was intentional. What the tweet meant was that very nearly a third of the students who are beginning their Harvard educations this year were admitted because a relative went to Harvard. Why does this matter? Well, For one reason, as the Crimson noted, nearly half of those legacies came from families with average incomes of more than $500,000 a year. Only 4% of legacy families were on incomes under 80 grand. Those numbers just underline how a Harvard education improves life chances in a way that would be comic if it weren't tragic for a supposedly classless society. I don't mean to pick on Harvard. You can probably find similar numbers for all of America's elite universities. Only 1,700 people were admitted to Harvard this year. For comparison, 3,200 undergraduates were admitted to Oxford. Imagine you're a high school student 
who has done all the right things and done them better than anyone else. Top grades, SAT scores, outside activities. You're competing in a much smaller pool for that Harvard place, which will put you in a position to enter American society's stratosphere. You're not competing for one of 1,700 places. Rather, you're competing for one of 1,200 places. The situation at Harvard is one of the best pieces of anecdotal evidence of just how calcified America's class system has become. And a lot of the feelings expressed in polls about the American dream disintegrating proceed from that calcification. I do sometimes wish that Karl Marx hadn't written a word. We would still have the idea of social and economic class, and we might be able to discuss America's class problems sensibly instead of people hurling the words Marxist, socialist, communist at anyone trying to explain why class rigidity is bad for any society. Anyway, on vacation I skimmed the opinion pieces of the New York Times less thoroughly than usual, but the headline, Sex at Wesleyan, What's Changed, What Hasn't, did its search engine optimized job and got me to click. Yes, in part because of the word sex, but also because I have a good friend my age who went to Wesleyan, one of those super elite schools alongside the Ivy League institutions where legacy counts. It was written by a more recent graduate named Vanessa Gregoriadis. The article was interesting for two reasons. She noted that fees at Wesleyan had doubled since she began her studies 20 years ago, from 25 to more than $50,000 a year. How does that fit with the low inflation numbers constantly being reported? Uh, no wonder people don't believe the news much. But the piece was indeed about sex, and the sex lives of young liberal co-eds caught in the verbal webs weaved about non-aggression and getting explicit consent for sexual activity and being, as George Carlin taught Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, excellent to each other. Gregoriades wrote, Adults may make fun of trigger warnings, but most kids support them because they're about extending a hand to others, undergirding an ethic of caring and decency, calling out microaggressions among classmates and policing tone on social media appealed to them in much the same way. She went on, Political radicalism at college is now more vocation than avocation, and anyone who displays a trace of racism, misogyny, or sexual predation is suspect. This was another example of self-induced social breakdown. Political radicalism at college 50 years ago was also a vocation, but it was focused on events happening in a reality external to campus hysteria, a mind state whipped up by the media. The struggle for civil rights, ending the war in Vietnam, existed outside the little world of wealthy campuses with students making the awkward transition from adolescence to adulthood. My immediate free association with the article was with the fact that the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world, many of them doing long sentences for convictions under America's deadly combination of draconian drug statutes and so-called Rockefeller or three strikes and you're out mandatory sentencing. President Obama granted clemency to nearly 2,000 people imprisoned primarily in this way a drop in the ocean of the more than two million people in the American gulag. It goes without saying that a disproportionate number of those in prison in the U.S. are African-American and Latino. 
many of the states with high numbers of blacks and Latinos in prison in comparison to white, happen to be the states that are most reliably democratic voting and are home to the most elite universities, including California and Massachusetts. My free association to these facts was probably triggered by Gregoriati's sentence beginning, political radicalism at college is now more vocation than avocation. Now, down the road from Wesleyan or Harvard or Princeton or Stanford is a prison where people are rotting and being raped and ruined. Real political radicalism might just lead the undergraduates of these elite institutions to be a bit more interested in ameliorating the conditions of their fellow citizens, suffering meaningless punishment rather than having meaningful conversations about privilege, gender, or racial. Oddly, never class-related. Anyway, another free association occurred over Labor Day. Actually, it's not so much free as an anniversary remembrance. Every year around this time, I recall one of the best opinion pieces I ever read at the New York Times. One of those little things you read, and even as you're taking it in, you know you will always remember it. It is direct, compact, and has a rueful, prophetic analysis of how American culture was changing at the time it was written. The author was Pauline Newman, who had been a child laborer at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory on Broadway in Manhattan's East Village. In 1911, 146 workers, mostly women and children, were burned to death in a fire at the factory, housed on the upper floors of a ten-story high industrial building. The fire exits had been locked, so no one could sneak outside for a breath of air or quick cigarette on company time. The tragedy changed public opinion decisively on the issue of unions and workers' rights. By the time of the fire, Newman was already a union organizer and no longer working at Triangle, but she knew many who died there. Because of paywalls and such, I'm going to read parts of it to you. Hopefully, you will remember it as well. To begin, Newman describes the horrible working conditions in vivid comic details. What I had to do was not really very difficult. It was just monotonous. When the shirtwaists were finished at the machine, there were some threads that were left, and all the youngsters, we had a corner on the floor that resembled a kindergarten, we were given little scissors to cut the threads off. It wasn't heavy work, but it was monotonous. Well, of course, there were laws on the books, but no one bothered to enforce them. The employers were always tipped off if there was going to be an inspection. Quick, they'd say, into the boxes, and we children would climb into the big boxes the finished shirts were stored in. Then some shirts were piled on top of us, and when the inspector came, no children. The factory always got an okay from the inspector, and I suppose someone at City Hall got a little something, too. She goes on to describe no days off, weren't even allowed to sing at your workstation in those pre-radio days when the human voice was the only entertainment around. But it's the conclusion that permanently epoxied the piece to my memory. Conditions were dreadful in those days, but there was something that is lacking today, and I think it was the devotion and the belief. We believed in what we were doing. We fought and we bled and we died. But it's the inner faith that people had in those days that I don't see today. It was a terrible time, but it was interesting. I'm glad I lived then. Even when things were terrible, I always had that faith. Only now, I'm a little discouraged sometimes when I see the workers spending their free hours watching television. 
trash. We fought so hard for those hours, and they waste them. We used to read Tolstoy, Dickens, Shelley by candlelight, and they watch the Hollywood squares. Well, they're free to do what they want. That's what we fought for. That was written in 1980, when Pauline Newman was 93. The trash quotient in American culture has increased exponentially, while Americans' willingness to read great literature has decreased in direct proportion since then. And I wonder if she would have been surprised, I was not, that a person like the current president was elected. And I also wonder if she would have been in despair, as I am, at the tiny passions and the lack of faith too many with a political vocation seem to have now. And I wish that her acute sensibility and wisdom were available to help me make sense of what is going on in America. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit the site. I'll put up links there to the articles I've mentioned in this podcast. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.